Do you know what nemesis means? Hello and welcome to Direct, the podcast that takes a direct trajectory through a director's filmography. I'm Eric. I'm Levi. Hot Fuzz is the movie we watched this week. Levi, in 30 seconds or less, please give me your review of Hot Fuzz. This is the finest tribute to, like, Tony Scott and uh, Michael Bay. It's beautiful. I think it should have been named Bad Boys 3, which is a joke I stole from an Edgar Wright commentary. It's fantastic. I loved watching this movie. How did you feel about it, Eric? I love this movie a lot, and it is the type of movie that is so tightly wound that uh, it definitely takes a few watches to get everything. And on this watch, I just realized how even more tightly wound it is than (laughs) I originally anticipated. We get a lot of the same Edgar Wright uh, tropes that we get in Shaun of the Dead. I mean, like... Half of the dialogue in the final act of this movie is just copy and pasted from earlier in the film, which is just awesome when you start recognizing it. Um, but basically, my review of this movie is that, you know, from a person who makes films where everything is connected, from a dialogue standpoint, from a script writing standpoint, this is a movie where everything is connected in a conspiracy standpoint. And I just love how those two things play off of each other. And I, I think that's what makes this movie really, really stand out to me. Um, you know, back back when we started this Edgar Wright journey, I've had Hot Fuzz as my favorite Edgar Wright movie for a very long time, and it didn't disappoint on this rewatch. Yeah, it's the call and response from the start of the movie to the end of the movie, and Shaun of the Dead certainly used the zombie genre and yeah. the Dawn of the Dead mechanics, but very much was just a zombie, a standalone zombie film. This movie goes so far as to show like silent rage like chuck norris it just referencing the movie straight up in the middle of it with the dvd at the supermarket with them watching point break and then bad boys 2 they just (laughs) they have no qualms with and this shit just got real yeah it was and it's great they do such a good job of referencing but making it would it feels and I would be curious to see their process for this kind of writing. Yeah. But do you write the movie first and then do you add the references in? Because the story is funny, unique, it's it's got a little bit of a twist when you know, there is the development angle, the real estate development angle. Right. And then they just blow it off. They're like, No, that wasn't it. We just wanna <laughs> keep petty. our town. Yeah, yeah. We're children about this sort of thing. Uh-huh. And it's a nice uh it's it's cool that they have this unique story underneath it all and then they go and it feels like then they go in and they kind of start to riff when they're writing the script and adding in the jokes well and the great thing about it you know we talked about how the diegetic music in Shaun of the Dead really uh do, does those two things that everything should do in a script and moving the story forward or or character development and the Use of the clips from Bad Boys and from uh, from Break uh, Point Break, uh, they, those both get called back during the action, the final action sequence. So I love how they they insert those into the film, but they're not um, they're not wasted. They're not just there for a laugh or for nostalgia. They're then referenced once again later in the plot. Um, when Danny, uh, you know, has to shoot in the air instead of shooting his dad, and then they do that spin around shot from Bad Boys uh, in the middle <laughs> of the square, which I think is my favorite single shot in this movie with when they uh, when they do that spin around. And if you want, really, really good. If you want to talk about diegetic music, how about the fact? So this is this is a step further than Quentin Tarantino ever took it. Every time Skinner drove by a scene yeah. of an accident. Not only was the song on his car radio, it was a song referencing the murder. There's a Romeo and Juliet song, and then there's something about fire in the sec- after the house blew up when he drew- drove by. I mean, it yeah, was fire just, to destroy what you've done. It's beautiful. I mean, it's just <laughs> such a good. I mean, the every frame of painting has been sticking with me since I watched that, especially for mm-hmm. this one. And Edgar Wright's 
greatest talent is that there is not a wasted moment. I mean, every, I mean, most of the time his edits are hyper fast and they usually relate from, uh, there was one moment where somebody gets knocked on the head and the camera goes down with the person going down. And then we come in on, uh, Simon Pegg sitting on the couch. Like just, there's no, there's no B roll in his films. It's, (laughs) (laughs) Just action, action, action. And this one probably felt a little bit more abusive with that. You know, Shaun of the Dead had its, like, when he's making breakfast. This one, about halfway through, I was like, oh, we could probably roll back those montages just a hair. But it's still really great. It's the same. It's like with Death Proof. It's, It's a minor quibble for such a fantastic movie. Well, I I love it in this movie because it is so referential of action movies, and that's the type of, you know, like you said, like Tony Scott uh, type action sequence of the quick shots from one thing to another. So I understand the overuse of this one because it is, you know, directly referencing action movies. Um, where while while it still is a very strong Edgar Wright ism in his films, where he does those quick quick cuts from one thing to another. Yeah, I. Uh, there's just so much in this movie that I really, <laughs> I really enjoy it. I I found myself really curious too how Edgar uh, Edgar Wright and Simon Pegg, the the screenwriters for this, how they actually put all this stuff together. Because you're right, there isn't a wasted moment. There's maybe one lull in the whole movie, uh, and I would say that that's when Sean and Danny are sitting at the pub, kind of talking about their pasts, and Sean's talking about how he wanted to become a cop, but then his uncle. And his uncle got him a little pedal car, and he started arresting older kids, and he got beat up, and then he realized his uncle was a drug dealer, and then he never touched the pedal car again. <laughs> Just let it rust in the corner. And then Daddy talks about how his mom died in a in a, in a uh, car collision. And uh, and I just thought that, that that was a nice little lull, because we had been so action-packed the entire time. You know, I, I recognize that as just kind of a little a breath in the middle of the film that's like... All right, we're gonna take a we're gonna take one moment here. We're gonna have a couple beers with these guys, and then and then we're gonna get back on that motorcycle and zoom off into the sunset. Well, and you have so. to you have to have the the history trope, the explain why I became a cop because none no movie ever lets it go that they just wanted to become a cop. You know, it's always <laughs> there's always some sort of dramatic story, and so when it's a pedal car and his uncle's a drug dealer, it's the most absurd of the the most absurd thing that they could develop for that background. Cause usually yeah. it's like my dad was a cop and he was killed in the line of duty. <laughs> I knew that I yeah. was the only one that could keep this town safe. Absolutely. I, I mean, but the thing is Simon Pegg is a, is a super cop in this movie. In fact, they reference super cop <laughs> directly <laughs> when he's in the uh, supermarket, he's chasing the, the shoplifter and daddy's reading the, um, the the dvd covers and he goes super cop the cop that can't be stopped and then he drops the dvd cover and then you see simon Pegg's character running directly <laughs> across uh and i think that you know starting off at the very beginning of the movie we get this long montage about sergeant angel and like uh, what an amazing police officer he is uh at the beginning of the film and i feel like they do that right off the bat to make to like differentiate this from Shaun of the dead because simon pegg's character in this movie is literally the exact opposite of his character in Shaun of the dead if Shaun had a little bit more motivation he might be the perfect supervillain for angel cuz <laughs> uh, cuz they don't really have anything in common whatsoever he is really it does start that it i wrote down in my notes like he's got range it's all comedic but Simon Pegg is a fantastic actor, and he can go from funny to – and he does sad really well. Like, the emotional scenes in Shaun of the Dead are really believable. Uh-huh. And when he plays serious in this movie, he does a fantastic job. I think he's he's super talented, and I'm excited to see where he goes as – you know, his infamy increases. <laughs> I'm really interested to see what happens on the Star Trek journey. Yeah, the, because cause he's writing on it, correct? Yeah, he wrote the third one, the, the upcoming Star Trek Beyond. And it's just so interesting to me, his trajectory of like, you know, before he was before he was on space, he was a stand-up comic in Britain. And he kind of like ran into Edgar Wright and then they made space together. And, like, who would have thought that, like, this guy would be, like, in the future 
a Star Wars movie and would be Scotty and the new Scotty in Star Trek and this rip-roaring kind of adventure star, <laughs> like, from such humble beginnings. I, I just, I love, one of the things I love about Simon Pegg is that he is kind of that everyman in that, in like every sense of the word, word in that he has, um, you know, started as kind of this goofy dude and now he's in Mission Impossible. <laughs> <laughs> like he's he's the, he's so easy to relate to because he uh he has that every man syndrome and yet he could still hang with actors like Tom Cruise or <laughs> or uh or or you know lead an action movie in Hot Fuzz. I think it's pretty cool. Yeah, he's made it far for being goofy looking and not being <laughs> like his trait. Cuz usually I mean yeah. and I think a lot of it is on the strength of his comedic timing it shows up in his writing it shows up in his acting it shows up in when that's generally when he's up against heavy hitting actors like tom cruise like his comedy it looks even better when he's standing standing next to nick frost uh in an edgar wright movie i think everybody comes across as very funny but throw him into other movies and he can steal the show it is interesting because I because Nick Frost does, isn't really that different from his character in Shaun of the Dead, um, but he definitely has a turnaround which he doesn't have in Shaun of the Dead, which I which I really like, and I love the scene when he's walking down the street in Stratford and uh, he's asking Sean like, "Have you ever sh- shot two guns while jumping through the air? Have you ever <laughs> shot a gun from a moving car?" And then at the by the end of the movie, he's done, done all of all that. Of those. Yeah. And that was great. I really liked when they bring up the stabbing and they show Santa Claus. Do you know this is a fact that I tripped across mm-hmm. that just made me chuckle? The Santa Claus is Peter Jackson. Yeah, Peter <laughs> Jackson. Yeah, Davey Mack on the forums. Uh, he wrote in and, and gave us a link to the uh, what is it? Film School Rejects did a full breakdown of the commentary that was in that link. Um, and then another. Interesting cameo that I had no idea is that uh, Kate Blanchett is plays his girlfriend. Yeah. Which <laughs> and that scene just cracks me up to know. <laughs> oh, everybody and, in those suits and him and the this is that same comedy that we saw in the first one where it was like your friend's an idiot. What do you mean yeah. by that? You want to hang out with him because he's a bigger loser. What do you mean by that? This is that same moment where it's like, are we talking about the crime scene? Are we talking about yeah, a relationship? And they go back and forth, and it's. That's the thing, like, everything has a dual meaning, and everything is so stacked, it's so stacked tightly that I love it. I also just love the the awesome comedic beats, like, <laughs> when he's like, you're cheating on me, and he's like, is it Bob? I think it might have been Bob, and she's like, no, it's Dave, and then Dave, like, turns around, hello there. <laughs> so good, so good. Um, I also love how, at the beginning of this movie, uh, I feel like if you were a British British person, like you, you experience this film a lot different than Americans do, um, because this scene where you have Martin Freeman, then Steve Coogan, then Bill Nye as like <laughs> the the three <laughs> over over overarching officers, I just think that's really awesome, um, and yeah, it, it's just great how they fill up this movie with all these like little tiny cameos, which are all good. Also, Stephen Merchant is the guy who owns the Swan. <laughs> and I don't know if Stephen Merchant had been has his fame that he has now, but like because he's one of, was one of the co-creators of The Office at this point. But, um, but I just love how like Stephen Merchant pops up in the middle of it out of nowhere. Well, really good. A lot of the older folks, I don't. My British movie history is not strong, yeah. so I the a lot of the references are lost. But I was listening to a commentary track with Edgar Wright and Quentin Tarantino, uh-huh. and. I mean, they're all famous in their own British way. And they talked about how, <laughs> you know, it used to be that you didn't highlight a movie because it was British. It was uh, just another movie that made it to the theaters in the States. And it just happened to have British actors and be set over there. But we make such a point of it now mm-hmm. that it's, uh, specific, you know, it's so distinctly British. Um, it was really cool. I highly recommend it. They don't talk about the movie at all. Um, so awesome. I, I, I put it on the screen and I had to like sync it up cause it was on YouTube, um, mm-hmm. with the Netflix thing. And at some point I just stopped watching the movie and started walking around the house, just listening to it because it's just them taking a deep film history dive. And we talked last week about how 
I think that Edgar Wright is easier for us to relate to his references because those are the movies we kind of grew up with. We're closer in age. Yeah. But he's got a strong background in film in general. And he was, I mean, he was easily keeping up with Tarantino in there in what they could reference. It was fantastic. (laughs) Yeah. I I, I have to check that out. I mean, come on. It's like, it's the two guys we've covered on direct. Like (laughs) that's like a must listen uh, for any, for any, anyone who's involved in this podcast. Um, yeah, I, I I just love all those little cameos. And let's talk. Speaking of, he's not really a cameo, but I mean, Timothy Dalton in this movie just kills it. Made me want so many more Timothy Dalton appearances. I wanted to ask you about this. You are probably yeah. the biggest James Bond fan I know. Where mm-hmm. do you come down on Timothy Dalton and James Bond? <laughs> I think that Timothy Dalton is the worst James Bond, <laughs> <laughs> which I think is but, the popular consensus. But I was just curious. Yeah. And by the way, because and people are going to say, "Oh, it's got to be George Lazenby." And I actually, George Lazenby is my favorite James Bond. So fuck everybody. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> I mean, that, that might just be my uh, that might just be my weird bias. But the thing is about Timothy Dalton's James Bond movies is that they're just like straight up s- semi B movie eighties a- action films. <laughs> like <laughs> they almost killed the franchise. There, there was like a. There was like a six-year difference between uh, Timothy Dalton and Pierce Brosnan, so uh, so you know i <laughs> I don't love the I don't love the Timothy Dalton James Bond movies, and you know that's not to say that the you know James Bond or Timothy Dalton isn't a good James Bond. It's it's very much the argument of uh, you know they're all good James Bonds, but he just happens to be the worst one, so. <laughs> Anyway, I but I do love him in this movie. I did think it's a little funny though how overtly throughout the film they paint him as the villain, like straight up from the very beginning, which I kind of love because it's this weird. He's almost like a Bond villain on the smallest scale possible. Like he has his lair at his supermarket, <laughs> and he's got his cameras where he can sit back and view everything that's happening. And, you know, he seems to be everywhere and he has these quippy uh, catchphrases every time that he goes around and um, he's seemingly just projecting himself as a supervillain the entire time. And I really love that kind of turn for him because, uh, I mean, it's pretty blatantly obvious that he's the bad guy. But it's Um, so... it. I remember the first time I watched this, I really was playing a guessing game of trying to figure out what was going on because given their... propensity for wordplay you think that they're just screwing with you on first pass yeah i remember because he's like you know when he comes up and he's like i'm a slasher a slasher of prices you're like oh my god and, <laughs> and or it's like skinner yeah <laughs> or when he, he gets in the hotel and the gal calls him like a fascist and he calls her a hag and they're doing the yeah. word at some point i was just like i give up i don't know who the villain is in this because i'm chasing my <laughs> tail trying. but on second watch yeah it's just Everybody is. That's it's Occam's razor, where it's like the simplest yeah. answer is most likely the correct one. Yeah, and I do think that there is some. I do think that there's still like a very similar social message to what I gleaned out of Shaun of the Dead in some ways to this movie. That HOAs because are it evil. Is, what's that? That HOAs are evil. <laughs> it's not an HOA. It's an NWA man. Straight out of Compton. <laughs> um, they. <laughs> Uh, but I, I do think that, cause there's a line at the end of the film where, uh, or it's not at the end of the film, but it's when, uh, Angel breaks in on the occult <laughs> circle of the neighborhood watch association. Oh, um, man. and the chief says, uh, you know, this is the best village, you know, cause Angel goes, this is all just to have the best village. And he goes, this is the best village. And he says, you're living in a dream world. And I did feel like there's some kind of thing that's very similar to like that consumer message that comes through. It's pervasive in zombie films and that like, you know, there you got to break a lot of eggs to have like the perfect society. And to say that it's perfect because everybody is happy does not necessarily mean that it's perfect. Uh, and I felt like that message really kind of rang through on top of this in, in a very goofy way. <laughs> well, that keeps up with uh, At World's End. Mm-hmm. The idea, you know, they that uh, I don't remember what his name character name is in the movie, but Simon Pegg, you know, he wants to be in that what felt like the perfect moment, 
but in reality yeah. wasn't just contextually that was all you know he just obsessed he's just obsessive about it and so i think i think yeah, it's funny because i think that carried i it's a common thread i think through the whole thing and these guys are edgar wright and simon Pegg and nick frost are all they seem like they've kept their youth in terms of their sense of humor and True. their work mm-hmm. and so i'm not surprised that it's something that they write about Especially as they get older, you know, they probably struggle with like, at what point am I supposed to be an adult? <laughs> or at what's the point? At what point am I supposed to be happy? Maybe or yeah, I what mean, is hyping all, happy? Yeah, these guys are all presumably very well off and living their dreams, and is is that ultimate fulfillment, or are we just destined to be uh, unfulfilled our entire lives? We're about to go back Sadness. down that hole that we got into. Yep, we don't got to go back down there. <laughs> anyway, I do want to talk about a, a really awesome post on the forums. This was done by Error Gorilla, is his name. Uh, but he's from Sheffield, UK. And I feel like he's got that British take that we're going to be oblivious to as, as Americans here. So I'm just going to read the whole thing. Here it is. He says, I think for me, it's that hot fuzz follows in the tradition of the wicker man or straw dogs. Indeed, the latter is set not too far from the world of hot fuzz. I'm not suggesting that they're thematically alike, but rather that both of these predecessors mind the fecund creepiness of rural England. You can tell this guy's British because he uses the word fecund. (laughs) I don't even know what that Uh, means. (laughs) A place of chocolate box streets nestling beneath medieval cathedrals and villages dotted across picturesque landscapes. He says, I agree with Alvy Singer. The country makes me nervous. Uh, just what goes on in all those small towns where only relations and day trippers visit. Why is it so trivia- trivially easy to imagine that behind the door of the Women's Institute, it's not just cakes that are being baked and strawberries that wait on the chopping block. I, <laughs> I've always felt the most terrifying part of an American werewolf in London was not the werewolf itself, but rather that scene in which they visit the isolated pub and meet the disturbing and genuinely creepy locals. <laughs> Says the writer Robert McFarlane refers to the skull beneath the skin of the English countryside, and I think I understand what he means. The English eerie looms large in the psychogeography of many of of my favorite writers. I'm thinking here of Alan Moore's Northampton or Warren Ellis, alone under the enormous gunmetal skies of his bit of Essex by the Thames Estuary, or as he has it, the Thames Delta, or Philip Larkin's poem here. God, this guy is way too smart for me. Um, <laughs> where the silence stands like heat. And I regard it all as part of a hot... To, oh my gosh, I feel like a dum-dum. Hotological? Hotological. Thank you. Hotological continuum that stretches way back throughout his English history. It's a continuum that includes Arthur Mackin and M.R. James. His pastoral horror of View from a Hill is also located like Straw Dogs and Hot Fuzz in southwest England. It continues right up to modern short films like the genuinely disconcerting The Gloaming and the remarkable and equally discomforting PS4 game Everybody's Gone to the Rapture, which is set in a deserted village in rural England. So yeah, this take of rural England as a creepy place is something that's been used a lot in British uh in British lore. And it is something I think that is very unique to Britain in that regard. There is an American equivalent. I well I'm thinking that maybe, you know, the place where you and I are from, the creepy Pacific Northwest kind of has a similar vibe. Alaska Shows up in a lot of films. Um, I'm thinking, yeah. what's the one with Robin Williams is super It'd creepy. Be insomnia. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Nolan. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's fine. Um, uh, but I do, I, maybe the Pacific Northwest with things like Twin Peaks and, oh, yeah. uh, and Alan Wake, <laughs> you know, these kind of creepy places up in up in the mountains in the woods where people go to escape um because because a lot of times you know the small town trope in american fiction it it goes creepy in a different way it doesn't go creepy because it's all like because uh, there's this veneer this facade of quaint and picturesque and beautiful and perfect it has this veneer and facade of of underhanded and you know dusty and deteriorating and that's it's just like the complete opposite when you when you put the american spin on it i think if we're talking about things like 
uh, like you know, the hills have eyes. I'm yeah, thinking Texas mostly about Chainsaw like Southwest, you know, where yeah. things are. People are out in the middle of nowhere, and there's something unsettling to you. Wonder why people you project that these people have uh, rejected society, right. and what are they? Hi- why are they hiding? Yeah, there's like this weird thing of of in in America, it's the people who are running away from from society because maybe they're social outcasts or maybe I, I mean i don't know but in britain it's about people who've settled far from society in order to have a more quaint and perfect life <laughs> which I, I maybe maybe they're very similar motivations they're just manifested differently um because of the history of the countries i mean we're talking about a country that's basically 300 years old versus a country that that goes back thousands of years these villages are are you know centuries old as well Whereas you know, Push Nevada is was founded in 1857 <laughs> by, <laughs> by a by a scraggly gold miner in the middle of the desert who found a found a spring and built a town around it. Um, yeah, I mean, Nevada similarly, talk. like what's that? I said Nevada talk. Nevada talk. Uh, <laughs> I mean, similar. It's got a similar aesthetic to Fargo, though. I think. Um, have you been watching Fargo on FX? I have not. I oh my haven't followed it at all. I really should. You are missing out, my friend. That is that is a must watch for you. I'm putting that on your mandatory watching list. Uh, <laughs> all right. It's first of all the TV show is great. Obviously the movie. I love the movie. Yeah, I've seen Cohen the movie. Brothers fan. But but it's I feel like that is the one that most easily translates to this British facade is the Minnesota nice where. Everybody will smile to your face, but they might stab you in the back. You know, it's that it's manifested in in this idea that like we put on airs and we put on, uh, you know, friendliness and and a nicety around all of our proceedings, but then behind your behind our back, we could be cold cold blooded killers. Um, so I feel like that's one that probably most easily translates from American to British. But I do appreciate that take a lot because that's something that would have went straight over my head. So good on you, error gorilla. <laughs> Great name, by the way. <laughs> yeah. What else do you like in this movie? Oh man, um, let me glance at my notes here because it it's so hard to know where to start and where to yeah. to jump to because it's, the movie's a giant sandwich. It's like it's like a sandwich that's been it's like a bowl of pasta salad. <laughs> it's like it's got the same ingredients, but they're just in different arrangements. I want to talk for a second about the no guns trope. This Uh is one of my favorite. I watched some Jason Statham movie. I was homesick from work the other day and trolling Amazon for something good. I couldn't find anything. So I settled for a Jason Statham movie, which is can't be that bad. Um, Uh And it was called (laughs) Wild Card. And it's one of those ones where (laughs) he just never uses a gun. But he doesn't uh-huh. have to. And, like, the end of the movie is him murdering people with, like, a spoon from a diner, which was really absurdly gory. <laughs> I feel like a gun would have been more efficient. Well, if you're going to murder people with a spoon, it's probably going to get pretty bloody. But I, one of my favorite movies is The Rundown with The Rock. And that's another one where he's like, I don't like guns. And then when he gets his hands on a gun, he's just... The movie could have been done in the first five minutes, but... It's like playing a video game on a hard mode. Don't yeah. you don't start with a gun. You have to but when you pick one up at the end like now it's on. Yeah. And I just the the gearing up montage in this movie after montage after montage of paperwork. Yeah. Was such a nice like three-peat joke cuz yeah. there's I'm trying to think of if there were more and moments of the paperwork but just to then end up with him with two shotguns on his back so high up they look like (laughs) wings and he rides in on a horse yeah i love the horse i actually wrote down horse and underlined it in my notes i love that because it not only harkens to um action movies but it also harkens to westerns like he's walking into town ready to ready to to deliver some justice and, um, and they even beautifully justified how he had access to all the weapons in a sleepy. Right. Like, of course, of course, in a sleepy town, you wouldn't have that kind of weapon cache. But they make sure to write it in. It's <laughs> it's impressively uh, 
distinct in how accurate they try and be, how they try and not. Right. Because, like, the door in Shaun of the Dead, where he's like, you got to close the door, you got to close the door, nobody's closing the door. And then, of course, a zombie comes in through the door because they don't close right. it. It's, they don't, they're very good at kind of the Chekhov's gun in in Edgar Wright movies, where everything that you see, because they're not wasting time, is generally going to come back around. You know, it's it's like music, the coda and a music. Like, you're going to repeat, and then you're going to, the end of it, will be just a little bit different and that's how you you know you go round in the song <laughs> yeah it's great i mean it's so tightly wound i love like in Shaun of the dead the joke doesn't even need to be said uh, overtly because they mentioned the open door like three times and then and then we see sean and ed on the couch and they're watching the news report and it says be sure to lock your doors and then they just look at each other because you know that the door's open like it's they they do such a good job of of building up these jokes that a simple look can be the punchline as opposed to being like, oh, no, we didn't close the door, like making it overt. And you go in knowing it's a zombie film. So, of course, the first time you hear the door is open, you're like, oh, that's going to come back. And they do it again. And And it does. No, it's great. Uh, And and it happens, I feel like this movie, I think the thing that I like about it so much is like, the first time I watched it, I was confused as hell. And... (laughs) This time I watched it and like I understood everything and you have to it it's the type of movie that really has to unpack layers. And I've seen some people who are who were down on Edgar Wright and down on Edgar Wright's films and I do think that he's the type of director who makes movies that are on their face entertaining because like the zombie dancing to Queen is super funny. Uh, or the final action scene in this where you have like old people w- on bicycles, you know, <laughs> with two uh, revolvers in their hands <laughs> running, riding down the street. Like it's funny on the face of it. But then if you really unpack these things, they are some of the most tightly, tightly, uh, you know, packed scripts that are just wonderfully, they're just wonderful callbacks. I mean, one of the first things that is in this movie is when they're trying to tell Angel that he has to go out to Stratford. Um, his response is, uh, with respect, sir, you can't just make people disappear. That's like one of the first things that he says in the entire film. And then it, the whole movie is about making people disappear. Like, there's tiny, tiny little things that are just so amazing. Um, there's Oh, I also love there's a great little Shining reference when he checks into the hotel. And she goes, check in, but you've always been here. <laughs> and there's like a creepy... <laughs> creepy little moment there that's like a great shining callback so it's this awesome balance of like pop culture call outs and then just callbacks throughout the entire movie um and that, another thing sorry go and that sea mine if you want to talk about like absurdly oversized callbacks <laughs> yeah. the first time you see it and then you get to the end and this is where the movie differs in its references to point break i'm going to spoil uh-huh. point break Keanu Reeves does not get his man. Uh Keanu Reeves gets a ton of people killed trying to catch Patrick Swayze. (laughs) And then in the end, he lets Patrick Swayze surf off into a storm to essentially commit suicide on like the biggest wave ever. And Uh it's dumb. They catch everybody but the guy that gets blown up by the mine in the end. Even even Timothy Dalton like gets stabbed through his throat, but he doesn't die. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But a bunch of the fight, like, they wing people, they, you know, they hit him with car door, they drop the keg barrels on him, they drop the bear trap on him, which doesn't really kill him. I mean, there's a lot of blood, but at the end, you know, yeah. they show them taking the pictures and filing yeah, the all these shots. people. That's mm-hmm. the exact opposite of Point Break. <laughs> <laughs> oh, because he doesn't kill anybody. Point, he doesn't kill anybody. He doesn't, supposed he to doesn't catch anybody. Everybody dies. Yeah. Even Swayze, when he corners him in Australia at the end, and Patrick Swayze's like, let me surf this man, and he lets him go. And it's so dumb. He's the Keanu Reeves is the worst cop. Yeah. That's my problem. Yeah, I, no, it's, it, that's totally true. That's something I wrote down. It said, I realized, because I totally forgot that he didn't actually kill anybody. For as many shots that are fired in this movie, nobody dies via gunshot. Um, but I do think that ending is so strange to me because, you know, uh, uh, I almost call him Sean. Angel has, um, you know, solidified the police force around him. He's become police chief. 
they're all having a good you know time in the police station because they caught everybody and then there's like it's like a false ending because then the neighborhood watch guy comes down because he forgot he was upstairs and i feel like it's an homage almost to michael bay in that like all right, guys, we got to have time for one more explosion. It's in this actually movie. also an Alan, or not, it wasn't Alan Rickman that does it, but Die Hard ends that way. Like, he throws uh-huh. Alan Rickman out the window, and then he gets outside, and that, uh, oh, God, what's his, the big German guy with, like, the long blonde hair, he kills, uh, Bruce Willis kills his brother, start, like, comes out, and is about to, like, gun everybody down, and then the guy from, is it family matters uh-huh. uh shoots him down but it's it is it's that the action trope of like all right one more like you think they're safe <laughs> but not quite <laughs> it's, it's uh reginald val johnson by the way that's the actor's name yes do not forget it reginald john val john exactly <laughs> um uh yeah no totally and and it also allows us to have Chekhov's mind because the mine was such a you know integral part of the story, so it has to go off at some point, right? Uh, and it's great to have that moment where, you know, after hitting it with guns and kicking it and moving it from one place to another, it does finally go off. Um, but that false ending is so strange to me because, like, Danny, it's like, <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I'm sure there's a reference there that I'm just not getting because Danny straight up gets shot up with a shotgun. And then blown up, and he doesn't die. And they're just like, like there's like this sad scene of of an angel over his body, like you know everything's gonna be okay, everything's gonna be okay. Fade out, and then yep, everything's okay. A year later, no problem, nothing wrong with it. So I feel like that's a reference that I'm just not getting. That I that uh, it's a call out, and and I need to do further research on it. Was um, he wearing a vest at the end? Now I'm trying to think back because I remember partway through the movie they tease Angel at the pub about wearing a a vest, a tactical vest, yeah. and he's like, "Hey, well, I've been stabbed, and it was not pleasant. That's why I right. wear the vest." And so I'm wondering if um, Nick Frost's character was wearing his at the end because you know he tries to mimic everything that Angel does. Well, but the problem with that is that he gets shot and there's blood everywhere. Maybe it's ketchup packets. Shot. I know that's the that's the only thing that I was thinking is maybe he's loaded up with ketchup packets, and maybe they had that in the scene and they, and they were like, no, we can't put that in the final cut. Like maybe he's like laying on the ground and uh, you know laying in the in the rubble of the police station. And Angel comes over, he's like, it's okay, it's okay. And then he like you know puts his hand on his chest and he brings up his hand. It's covered in blood, and then he looks at it kind of quizzically and then he like smells it and then he like tastes it <laughs> and then he looks at Danny and Danny goes ta-da <laughs> <laughs> and they're like we just we got to alternate cover. ending yeah that's it cuz they did have uh, to they do have to get the trope in of the visiting the grave that's another yeah. popular like especially for lethal weapon i know that uh, mel gibson at least once if not twice visits his wife's grave yeah Anyways, classic. Yeah, no, that's totally a thing of like the the gray day when you go out and and visit the gravestone of your fallen comrades. Um, yeah, absolutely. I also love the swan in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> the swan. There's got to be symbolism with the swan because not only is he chasing the swan, but there's also a swan right outside his hotel room, a ceramic swan. Um. So, like, the swan is this... I love it because it's this thing that just kills him because it's it represents exactly why he shouldn't be in Stratford. Like, like his biggest nemesis is that, that everybody, you know, uh, everybody thinks he should be tracking down as a swan that, that, that just keeps getting away. Which I, I just love it because it's this... It's, it's like the symbolism of the, the weirdness and the naivete of the town and that uh that a, a single foul can can only uh, can be the only thing that's that thwarts our, our greatest police officer um yeah i just love this one and then at the end of the movie the very anticlimactic <laughs> <laughs> when he just wakes up we see him go after yeah go after the and then, he, and then it's just this weaving thing and he just like slowly runs into the tree <laughs> in the middle of the field uh the most majestic asshole creature 
in England is the swan. It, yeah. It's beautiful, <laughs> but it's so mean. It could break your it could break your arm. <laughs> what? Um, that's what they say in the movie, a swan could break your arm. <laughs> I don't know. I've never uh never encountered a swan in that way. I've been chased by a goose, but never a swan. You know, one of the sad things about swan, I learned this at, at uh, Yellowstone National Park, is that swans mate for life. So if you ever see a single swan, it means that its mate has died. That's... Oh my god, dude. Why are you bringing it back down? <laughs> no, but the symbolism. Oh, that this swan is alone. the police so chief's is... wife died. And so he is the wandering swan. He's reckless and... And he has he... to be caught. And he has to be caught. Oh my god. Oh, we're peeling back the layers, Smevo. I'm liking this. Ooh, I like it. All right, let's talk about some other Edgar Wright isms here. Oh, yes, please. Of course, we have the fence, oh, which is wonderful. Always funny. It's a great wink to the fans because if you're a fan of Edgar Wright and you see Simon Pegg approaching a fence and the only other movie that you've seen is. Shaun of the Dead, then you assume that he's going to go up there and just run directly into the fence and knock it over. But then he does it. He does his acrobatics and flies over the fences, and then uh, and then Danny's the one who goes in and knocks it over. So it's a great callback because uh, it gives you what you want ultimately, but it but it uh, you know changes it just a little bit uh, as as its own trope. Well, so, it's, the f- it's one of those jokes that I. I'm looking forward to over the course of Wright's career. I think, you know, we're doing a (laughs) short run now, but I mean, he's like Tarantino. He'll easily do, you know, 10 movies that are solidly his own. And I think he's had enough um, success at this point that he'll probably, you know, like with uh, Scott Pilgrim and he almost did Um, Mm Ant-Man. I think when he finds kind of, I think when uh, producers and studios kind of start to trust him, start to not to trust him but to trust that his movie will be great and they don't need to screw with him i think he'll see yeah. a lot of a lot more mainstream success um but with all the mo- over the course of all of his movies that joke is going to come back and it's <laughs> it's similar to the like i don't rem- even remember how the joke goes but have you ever heard the dead baby joke it goes like 12 deep where it's like the first one's like oh what's this it's a dead baby and then there's a second joke and it's something about a dead baby and you know the joke just keeps shifting a little bit to the left so that you can't that like you can't like, quite guess a, the answer. Is it's like what's the difference between a Ferrari and a pile of dead babies? I don't have a Ferrari in my garage. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those. Okay, and <laughs> over the course of I mean, because for this one they, you know, they do he succeeds when you're expecting him to fail, so they mess with us once, and then uh, I'm trying to remember how the fence joke goes down in. Uh, at world's end, but I think that the like whole fence goes down and yeah, you know, they're going to keep screwing it's and it's so self-indulgent, but I love it that they, <laughs> and I hope that it made, it stays through the whole series because it'll be the best at the end when you can put all 10 of them together. <laughs> it's his trunk shot, which we did get a trunk yeah, shot in this movie. <laughs> we got the trunk shot. I do think it's a little unfair because I'm sure the trunk shot has been used in other films. But now it's like the Tarantino trunk yeah, shot. He's, and, he's and at this point co-opted it. Yeah, and it's very it's very similar actually to me to the uh to the trunk shot in Kill Bill. And this movie came out after Kill Bill, but because of the way that the taillights really oh, like shine up. Yeah, it was very, very similar to that. Um Yeah, I, I really love that part of it. Um and I love that little callback. Uh, another callback, another rightism, I think, is that you have to be willing to kill your parents. <laughs> <laughs> there's some, there's some like weird parental relationship that is involved in, in, in you know, so far in Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz. In that, um, I don't know. I guess it's just like the complicated relationship with your parents, <laughs> where <laughs> at, at one point you love them unconditionally, but at the other point you can't stand them. <laughs> there's like, there's like this big, you know, there's this, there's the old, um, the old adage that all children want is an apology, and all parents want is to be uh, thanked, and then neither of those things ever happen. Uh, that's kind of like the. I feel like that's kind of the adage that's that's put throughout each of these films because 
it is like a really like Danny's dad, the police chief in this movie, is such an evil person. He's like insanely evil, <laughs> but he's crooked and he's got a motivation behind it, and that is his wife went crazy trying to make the town perfect, and he himself has fallen into that same trap. Um, so yeah, there's some there's some kind of parental thing that I think we should also look out for in each of Wright's films. Do we think that now I'm going to have to go look up the history of Wright and figure out what <laughs> if like he's got because I always wonder this about Wes Anderson because Wes Anderson has a very distinct I always yeah. say he's his tone is typically like you choose your family or mm-hmm. your friends are your family in most of those movies yep. and I always wonder like what happened in Wes Anderson's young life where <laughs> it was like he just had to make it you know he just started adopting himself a family instead of you know the one that you're kind of born into um, well, I think we all do that to, to some extent. Oh, I absolutely agree. I think that's, you know, the way that we are. And it's mm-hmm. simply because we come from smaller families. And, you know, right. I, I personally, I don't think you do either, really have relatives near where we live growing up. Um, yeah. Yeah. For the most part. I mean, and the other thing is that we, none of, it's weird that our little group of friends, we have this group of four friends and we all have one sister. So we don't have any <laughs> brothers, and so we just kind of adopted each other as brothers, which I think is really cool. Yeah. So it's um, a yeah, I think it's a good point the the parent thing, and uh, yeah, I'm just looking forward to to rounding it out with At World's End, and I'm excited for uh, Scott Pilgrim and the Interlude. I love Scott Pilgrim. I'm so excited. Yeah, the Interlude of Scott Pilgrim is going to be interesting. Um, but yeah, I think we should keep an eye out for this. Because I, I do think it's a universal thing. I do think that there's this weird relationship that you have with your parents, especially once you become an adult. Like, the adult relationship with your parents is really strange. And it's got to be trippy for parents. I mean, I'm sure I'll experience this at some point in my life. And you're about to embark on the journey of fatherhood. But, like, this idea that uh, at some point your kid is going to be, like, 30 and you're going to be, like, 60... Like, that's got to be really weird for you as a parent because you raise, like, they remember you when you were, like, a tiny little babbling baby. And and you couldn't do anything on your own. And now you're, like, this, you know, fully self-sufficient human being. It's got to be a trip for people. Well, Nick Frost's um, dad, like, they show up at the, the town fair dressed uh-huh. up as they were in the picture when the mom was still alive. You know, right. they're trapped in that relationship. Yeah. Absolutely. They're, yeah, they're wearing the same exact clothes. I just love that. I'm a bit of a Western nut. Um, yeah, I, yeah, absolutely. So I do think that there's a, that adult relationship with parents is a very interesting thing, and it's something that, uh, yeah, it's this weird thing. Like, you know, your parents, you always want them to be your parents, but at the same time, you you eventually grow out of that need, and then you still look to them for that support, and yet the whole reliance is different i don't know it's an interesting dichotomy so i think it's something we should look at um and then the final rightism that i wanted to uh, mention and we should definitely look out for this at least in world's end is the up close zipper shot right after peeing (laughs) like there's the peeing and then there's the up close zipper shot they actually do two of them in Shaun of the dead uh with him pulling his fly up and then there is the the fly going up on the on the fridge magnet here in Hot Fuzz. So, uh, close up cl- crotch shot zipper up. <laughs> Keep an eye out for that, Levi. Yeah. One other thing go. to watch for, and it comes up. It Scott Pilgrim just lends itself to this is the sound effects to emphasize a moment. Uh huh. And I loved it. Oh, I loved it so much when uh, <laughs> Timothy Dalton is talking about his workers. And then it just pans over to the window, and they're all standing there looking brain dead, and you just hear the bzzz. Yeah, Yeah, they're the zombies. I love it. And I love their attack, too, at the uh, supermarket. Like, they just get a little footnote out of attack where they're throwing pineapples. And then the cops start shooting at them. They're shooting at children who are unarmed. We're throwing pineapples. No, that's the thing. This whole thing flies out the window at the last act. Like And it's wonderful because... The whole movie, we've been going by the book, you know, we've been we've been doing this over and over and over, going by the book, and at the end, we just throw all that caution to the wind and just go nuts, and it's wonderful, because it gets called back to when they finish watching, I think it's when they finish watching Point Break, and 
<laughs> and Simon Pegg says, you know, well, that definitely was a rip-roaring action adventure, but the amount of paperwork associated <laughs> with that would be daunting. And then at the end of the movie, we see them doing all the paperwork and they're loving it, which I just think is great. Um, another wonderful thing, and this can't have been a mistake, is uh, at, right after Simon Pegg says that, after they watch Point Break, um, and and right after that, Danny puts in Bad Boys 2, which is a Michael Bay movie, and then right as he puts in the movie, then the house blows yeah. up and we get like the biggest <laughs> Michael Bay explosion of the movie, which I just thought was amazing. Uh, yeah, the, so many good references. The way things are and, just cut, cut together, I mean, it's yeah. just... It's slick. I mean, it seemed I would. It's one of those. It's so refined. Yeah. That I can't imagine how shooting it, like how you, you know, storyboard that out, mm-hmm. because the it seems so ad hoc, but it's clearly right. not. It's not. It's not. I mean, that's what I. That's the thing I think I really admire about Edgar Wright in general is that he puts in the work, and you see the work on, on the screen. And it's so intricate and amazing. It's almost like he's building, like, uh, you know, a model. <laughs> it's like everything. I, I would love to see his storyboards. And the visual comedy in this is so something that's so refreshing because I mentioned this uh, last week, and it's in that uh, Every Frame of Painting uh, video on YouTube pertaining to Edgar Wright, is that modern American comedy is basically just filmed improvisation. So you get the funny people, you get the Seth Rogen, you get the... Uh, the Will Ferrell, you get the Kevin Hart, you put him in a movie, and then you just let him do like a dozen takes, and then you pick the funniest one and you put it in the film. And the Edgar Wright comedies are so different from that. <laughs> they are just like insanely different. Now, it doesn't, it doesn't account for a great, uh, you know, um, uh, hidden alternate take reel, which you could do on the other movies, but what it does is it gives you a super intricate visual comedy that you just don't find in those other films because you could do cuts from one thing to another one of my favorite visual comedy bits in this entire movie <laughs> is when the neighborhood watch guy would we would we get introduced to him at the top of the police station during angel's first tour of the station he talks about the nemesis of the human statue and then he's got four pictures, and he's like a menace of our streets. And he's got four pictures that are all taken an hour apart, and this human statue is in the same exact position in all four of them. Like, I just thought it was so funny to have this, like, wily human statue, but at, at the same time, he's completely stagnant, and he doesn't move. <laughs> we can't stop him. We can't stop <laughs> he's him. He's the bane of the streets. I, uh, and then the beautiful part at the end when he's going through the catacombs and the human yeah, statues and they're dead in the, in the statue pose. Well, because they he comes up. That's another like three peat joke. Like we see him in the pictures and then they mm-hmm. they talk about him at uh, the town meeting that he's back. Yeah, and then the next time you see him, he's dead and frozen again. <laughs> yeah, in the catacombs, it, he's the, just, in the same position. He's still a statue. <laughs> yeah, and. Just nothing is wasted. I mean, that catacomb scene is just so amazing. Like we go through, we see the gypsies, we see the 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 shoplifter, we see the sta- the human statue, and then we see the guy with the big bushy beard, and we know, we know exactly what happened to him uh, as the prior uh, sergeant who came through. So, uh, yeah, man, so tightly wound. I would love to see his storyboards because. I just feel like it would be a master class in filmmaking if you could just study Edgar Wright's storyboards, uh, you know, with the script and with the dialogue underneath. Um, one of the one of the other things, one of the other Wrightisms, is the whole, uh, you know, what should we do now? And let's go to the pub. Or what are you what are you <laughs> thinking? The pub? Like that's another thing that gets called back. That line literally gets said the in the exact same way with alternate people saying it. Um, in this movie, the first time, what are you thinking, uh, is, uh, I believe Danny says that, and then Ed, and then Angel says the pub, and then the second time Angel says, what are you thinking, and, uh, Danny says the pub, so, and of course the callback to Shaun of the Dead with what's the plan, the pub, so having the pub be the plan, and it's obviously going to be a trope in the world's end, so. It's a good plan. (laughs) Yeah, I like it. (laughs) I think it's a good plan. Um. Also, the way that Edgar Wright makes words change meaning throughout the film, in that, uh, you know, the word accident in this movie gets (laughs) 
promoted over and over and over and over and over again. And then at the end of the movie, it, it gets to the point where even um, Angel is using the term accident. When he's beaten down, he's using the term accident to refer to things that he blatantly witnessed as murders. Oh, it was an accident. Um, you know, he gets he gets beaten down, and that's a way that they signify that. Or the way that collision gets thrown in there. Or the way that uh, force or service gets thrown in there. Yeah, the, um, the common references to the correcting the word choice yeah. is... A great recurring joke, and it's so... I mean, I love wordplay. I'm kind of a sucker for it, so... <laughs> well, yeah, if you of... don't like puns, you're not going to like this movie, too, <laughs> I don't think. Uh, yeah. And but, the, yeah, the wordplay the word is just wonderful. Well, and it's always foreshadowed. Like, these... I think that's the the greatest Edgar Wright-ism, I would say, is foreshadow. Everything's foreshadowed. Mm-hmm. Shaun of the Dead, everything was foreshadowed. This one, it, Hot Fuzz, everything's foreshadowed. And I'm looking forward to watching for it in At World's End is just, I mean, calling out who's going to be killed, who's killing, you know, like uh, when they're walking out of the pub and Simon Pegg and Nick Frost and they're like, well, hopefully we never see him again. And they don't because he's (laughs) dead. Or the kid in Shaun of the Dead where the kid like hits him with a ball and he tells the kid, you're dead. And next time he sees him, zombie. Yep. Nick Frost going through like the have you done this, have you done this, have you and then the movie like you everything happens. You know, they all they do all of those yeah. shooting tricks by the end of the movie. So I think Well and just, even with that when he gets into Stratford, when he's on the taxi, he goes by the welcome sign, then he goes by the model village, then he goes by the church tower, and the decapitation uh, crime scene is at the welcome sign. The model village is obviously the scene of the final battle, and then the church tower is where the uh, the writer gets killed. Um, God, the most one of the most graphic <laughs> I deaths. Know. I know out of Tarantino and Edgar Wright. I think that one is the one that like I just can't get out of my head. And shit, I watch Bone Tomahawk, and I think they're just about the the most gruesome scene of Bone Tomahawk, and that guy wandering around with a spike on his noggin. Yeah. Son of a bitch. Well, the walking around is a little... I mean, he would just drop. There's no, there's no way yeah, your the, body keeps standing. The weight standing. of that thing would collapse your entire... <laughs> They do the no, but yeah, the way move. that it, the way that the skin is like rolled up and under his neck, yeah, like, it is. It's really, really, really gruesome. Um, and I love how everybody in the movie also has last names. And this is a total Englishism too, because this is kind of the way that British last names are structured in many ways. But they always have like a uh, a last name that kind of uh, de- de- defines their character. So you have like Skinner, who's the killer. You have Messenger, who's the who's the um, the newspaper man. Uh, one of the bad guys, is, his last name is Reaper. Uh, the lady who owns the the nursery, her last name is Tiller. Like, <laughs> there's Roper. Like, there's the the way that they the, all these names kind of define the characters. I think that's really cool as well. Um, yeah, there's just so many things about this movie that just. It, it's a type of thing, like I said, if you're watching an Edgar Wright movie, I think the first time it can be a little off-putting because you feel dumb. You feel like you're you feel like you're a dumb dumb reading that forum post, and that the, the rest of the world knows way more <laughs> than you do. Whereas, uh, if you just give it a couple of tries, you you start to uncover the real magic that is Edgar Wright, um, and just admire the handiwork because it's something that's pretty unique, especially in the world of comedy today. So I think that's pretty awesome. All right, buddy. Anything else on on Hot Fuzz? No, I'm looking forward to just keeping the Edgar Wright train rolling. All right. Well, <laughs> jog off. <laughs> I hope you gave the two fingers up. Which oh, I did. For people who don't know, that is how British people flip people off. I know it's so weird. I love it. I think it's great. I, I like the middle finger better personally. But then there's, I think there's some cultures where they just give you a thumbs up. That's like flipping I people think- off. Yeah, that seems very confusing. I love giving people... A th- I give people the thumbs up all the time. <laughs> you better watch what country you're in, my friend. I guess. Uh, speaking of... Uh, well, there's no real tie-in here. But if you want to talk to us, uh, go to Forbes.BallMove.com. There will be a forum there for our next movie, Scott Pilgrim versus The World. And, uh, of course, you can always email us, directpodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to read your email 
on the air. If you want to be real special, you can record a message, put it on there, and then we can get your voice on the cast. So there's a lot of ways to get in touch with us. Also, just go to baldmove.com for all of your pop culture needs. It is officially unofficial, your source for everything fun in movies and television. So uh, so check that out. And until next week, I'm Eric. I'm Levi. Cut.